You might as well open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. This is a pastoral epistle. And it has one of the verses in these chapters from Paul to Timothy and Titus about not dealing with doubtful disputations in the church. It's got a number of warnings about foolish and unlearned questions, but Titus 3.9 puts it this way. This is from the Apostle Paul to the Bishop Titus, who was left in the island of Crete to set in order the things that are wanting there, according to chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 8, you know, Paul has told Titus, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which had believed in God might be careful to maintain good works, And those good works are listed here, and none of them are matters of liberty, but they are matters of righteousness. In order to please God, these things are good and profitable unto men. And that's how verse 8 ends. But, in distinction to that 8th verse, we have the ninth. But avoid foolish questions, and genealogies, and contentions, and strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and vain. It's worthless to argue about the law of Moses, to bring up genealogies and all the contentions and foolish questions that people can come up with about various things of liberty and various things of the Old Testament law, trying to bring it over in the New Testament. And so we have this, and there are a number of others that are given in the pastoral epistles about ministers not wasting their time on even answering such people that come with foolish and unlearned questions. That's just wanting to argue for argument's sake. Turn over to Hebrews 13 to another single verse about Christian liberty. Hebrews chapter 13, as the apostle ends the epistle to the Hebrews, the 13th chapter is typical for the way he ends epistles by a string of miscellaneous reminders that he has for them. Brotherly love in verse 1, hospitality in verse 2, being in a body in verse 3, marriage in verse 4, contentment in verse 5, and so forth. But it's verse 9 I want. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Those Jews were so tempted to get all worked up about meats. And they did have Old Testament scriptures. But notice the apostolic warning from the Apostle Paul. It's unprofitable. It has not profited them that have been occupied in such things. It's a good thing that the heart be established with grace. And we want our hearts established with the grace of of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace between ourselves and not things like meats. It's a shame what can happen to whole denominations like the Seventh-day Adventists, which if you've met Seventh-day Adventists, are the, nice, are the nicest people you'd want to meet. Like the Mormons, if you've met Mormons, the nicest people you'd want to meet. But they certainly can get off the track and trail of truth in the Word of God so that they worry more about the seventh day of Mount Sinai and they worry more about not eating certain meats. And they worry about you eating breakfast cereal instead of hot foods like bacon and eggs for breakfast. Remember, they invented breakfast cereal. No one in the history of the world had thought that you could take bark off a tree, put it in a bowl, pour milk over it, and actually get it down. 
until the Seventh-day Adventists came along. And if you don't believe me, you know that you all have these little boxes at home that say Google around them, and that if you type in serial Seventh-day Adventist, Battle Creek, Kellogg, who, who are the doctors Kellogg? Two Seventh-day Adventist doctors that made a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, which to this day is the serial capital of the world. Because if you'll eat breakfast cereal in the morning, you won't pollute yourself during the day. You'll stay away from playing with yourself during the day. And I'm sorry if you can't handle truth, but that's what Seventh-day Adventists believe. If you'll eat breakfast cereal in the morning, it won't happen. It's when you eat breakfast meat. It's when you have bacon and eggs and ham and other meats like that. So they invented breakfast cereals so that there wouldn't be any self-pollution going on. And, uh, you know, they go to all continents of the world and they have churches all over the place, all messed up, so ridiculous. How long can a farmer last? if he goes out there with a bowl of frosted flakes from Kellogg, even if he's roaring like Tony the Tiger while he's eating them. On the little bit of carbohydrates that you get by putting white Kool-Aid over processed flakes that are then covered in sugar. But that's another... Here I go! But this is where you end up. This is where... Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. I just told you one. And I'm not making a single thing up about it. They're nuts on the matter. And they've been nuts for a long time. And I don't mean grape nuts. That's one of their cereals as well. And they're not grapes and they're not nuts. But they're harder than tree bark. you got to let them sit in milk. You know, most cereals you don't want to sit in milk because it gets soggy. But if you don't let your grape nuts sit in milk, you're not going to get them down. Unless you've got a gizzard to be able to process. And I read verses like this and knowing these different things and they're good people, but they're, they just get off on these tangents and they make the tangents the most important thing in their religion. And if you've ever met one of them, you'll know that they've got to come to it right off the bat. Sabbatarianism. Right. When you've met the Church of Christ, they've got to come to Acts 2.38 because they've got a sacred cow. If we, We're not going to have anything that I'm going to call a sacred cow, but you know what we're going to come to in every conversation we have? We better come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want to get to every time we have a conversation. The Lord of glory. The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these are just a couple of verses to introduce the subject of Christian liberty here in our second assembly today. Christian liberty is the freedom that God gives individual Christians to do as they choose in matters that He has ignored in the Bible. He doesn't care what you eat for breakfast. Christian liberty is the freedom God gives individual Christians to do as they choose in matters He's ignored in the Bible with no fear of rejection or punishment by the church, by the pastor, or by other members. It's a wonderful way for us all to get along in a church body, though we have different family traditions, different habits, different views, different training, different ideas on things that God doesn't care about. He wants us all to receive each other and, and embrace each other and love each other because the thing that makes communion here, the things that gives us common union, is the Lord Jesus Christ, not these other issues. I want us to be divided on these some of these other issues lest we end up being like the Seventh-day Adventists. Because if we were to get united on one of these issues a little too strongly, then we might make that one of our sacred cows. And I only want the Lord to be that. So as long as there's division, it's healthy. 
And we agree to disagree. And it teaches us love and charity and patience and goodness toward each other by overlooking the differences that we discover that exist among ourselves. This includes this freedom that God allowed even weak Jews to practice Old Testament religion even when Jesus had ended it. You know, that, if you think about the fact that those Jews were becoming vegetarians because they didn't understand the New Testament gospel, and yet the Lord is so merciful because of so many years of instruction in their genes almost, and because they had Old Testament scriptures, God allowed it. God mercifully allowed them to become vegetarians rather than forcing them to eat meat that they hadn't eaten before. Now, of course, as I've said many times, Paul was constantly doing little sales jobs on the fact that they were weak and that they could eat meat and that he could eat meat. And he knew, because he'd been taught by the Lord Jesus, that there was nothing unclean of itself. And so there was that constant effort at trying to instruct them and bring their consciences up to speed. By far, the greatest emphasis on Christian liberty, though, is not your freedom. The greatest emphasis by far is the restraint on your freedom to help others. Altering your choices in public so as to edify others. It is you allowing freedom to every other saint, not you demanding your own freedom or causing others trouble by your freedom. So the emphasis on Christian liberty is not so much your freedom, but others' freedom. And you know, is, haven't we learned that about the whole thing of, of the New Testament religion and the New Testament gospel? Is we don't go to church to be loved, but we go to church to love. And we don't learn about Christian liberty for the freedom it gives us so much as the freedom it gives others and our desire to protect that freedom. Because when you read Romans 14, 15, 1 Corinthians 6, 8, 10, and other places, the emphasis is on us sacrificing our freedom for the edification of others. And that is the emphasis of Christian liberty. It's not for us all to become libertines, though happy is the man that is able to participate in things that he no longer condemns in his conscience, but it's to be very considerate of others. However, liberty has its limitations. And that provides the basis and purpose of the things that we're covering in this particular study called Christian Liberty. There are many rules in the Bible to help us define, explain, and restrain the exercise of our liberty so that we please God in these things that He doesn't care about, but He does care how we use them and how they affect others. No pastor, church, or Christian has the right to demand his preferences or condemn those of others. Now, there may be times for some pastoral judgment in how we define modesty or how we define how much alcohol is too much or anything or things like that. But, you know, we're not we're not going to do that unless we're forced to do it in this church. And there's uh, intense efforts have been made to avoid that in the past. And those same intense efforts are going to be in the future, lest personal opinion come through. But the pastor does have to make some decisions at times. And that's why when we take new members into our church, we ask, are you willing to submit to the pastor in the areas that he's responsible for? You know, church attendance. Is it a matter of Christian liberty? That's pretty intense and quick answer. But is there some liberty in the non-liberty issue of church attendance? Yes. And how do we divide between the two? A pastor's judgment. 
Uh, there are liberties that we have at home, and yet as the church comes to full knowledge on a subject that the church would practice in public, we've done them before. And a pastor makes those kind of choices and decisions. The church, the church has reached a stage of knowledge where certain things that in the past would have been a liberty kept at home and not done publicly can be done in public because the church has matured sufficiently for that. Some of you have asked me about this, and I'll, I'll share it right now. There's, there's quite a bit that can be said, and it's in the, the notes. Why is there even an issue about meat offered to idols in the book of Romans and in the book of 1 Corinthians when Acts chapter 15 just flat out made a law that said you can't eat meat offered to idols? Some of you, some of you have asked me about that, and I commend you for your astute knowledge of the Bible to ask me that question. And see, it's a matter of judgment. The council at Jerusalem had a limited agenda that they were considering and a limited geographical scope of their findings. And it is stated very clearly. It only went to the territories that the Apostle Paul visited on his first evangelistic preaching trip. Because think with me. There were, four, there were four things that the Council of Jerusalem said. The Gentiles don't have to get circumcised and they don't need to keep the law of Moses. They shouldn't commit fornication. They shouldn't eat blood. They shouldn't eat meat strangled. And they shouldn't eat meat offered to idols. Is that the four? Well, then why in the world do we have 1 Corinthians 6, 8, and 10 and Romans 14 and 15 about meat offered to idols? Because it's a matter of judgment. Now, Paul's judgment was inspired. But we, when you go back and look at Acts chapter 14 to see where Paul went in his preaching, and when you go to Acts chapter 15 where they wrote the letter to the churches, it is a very specific geographical area that is on the southern and eastern end of Turkey that Paul did not cover. It was in Asia where Paul went and preached, and then he went across the strait into Greece where there was Corinth. Corinth was far away from Cappadocia, and the areas that Paul visited on his first trip that the Council of Jerusalem dealt with. And then Rome is much farther west than even that. If you go look at a map of the area and see where Antioch of Syria was, where Paul's home church was, he crossed the Mediterranean and dealt with a very small territory on his first trip. Second trip, he went to the other end of Turkey and then crossed the strait into what was Achaia and Philippi, provinces of uh, cities and provinces of Macedonia and Achaia of Greece. And then Rome is much farther. And so they're not even mentioned. So the Council of Jerusalem has had a limited agenda for a limited group of people based on geography. And it shows you right there that there are differences made by judgment of who is able to handle what. Those first Jew Gentile churches, excuse me, that were formed from Jews that were converted by Paul's synagogue preaching and along with some of the Gentile proselytes were forming these churches and it was just staggering for the Jews to put up with the Gentile practices of eating anything. And so out comes the, uh, the ruling from the council at Jerusalem. And because there were false teachers that had gone out of Jerusalem following Paul to these churches of his first trip teaching that you had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. And when you go to Acts 15, you find out that it's those teachers, a specific heresy with a specific geographical location to which that applied. And it didn't apply all the way west to Greece 
where we have the city of Corinth, and much farther west to the city of Rome. And so we read and we study our Bibles, and we see that there are distinctions made for the benefit of the weak. And so if weak come among us, we are going to adjust our behavior. We might not have done something for a while in our church in public gatherings, then we might have allowed it for a while, then we might not allow it for a while, and it's going to be the pastor's best judgment so that we do not offend the weak and that we do not give offense. And you should all be able to understand that because Christian liberty has as its primary emphasis us sacrificing and restraining our liberty for the comfort, security, edification, and help of others. The only things that we should ever be willing to divide over are things that are clearly and definitely specified in God's Scriptures. As we like to say it in this church, until we have a tsunami of Bible evidence for a particular doctrine or practice or against a particular doctrine or practice, we're not going to change it from a liberty to be a sin. We're going to consider it a liberty until there's a tsunami of evidence that it is a sin. Because even the Jews could bring up Leviticus chapter 11 that they shouldn't eat those unclean meats. Even the Jews could bring up Daniel chapter 1 that they shouldn't eat meat offered to an idol. Even the Jews could bring up the Moses' calendar and show the days that they ought to keep. But they were wrong. They were misapplying Scripture. They were wrong in the Scriptures. They were missing the New Testament gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It helps to know the weak in the New Testament had more Bible support than any week today. I say that often because we should not come up with any subject that a person is willing to leave a church of Jesus Christ for, or that they're going to come to the pastor and say that such and such a person, person, their family, should be excluded because of what they're doing, or that they should be publicly rebuked for what they're doing. We shouldn't come up with anything like that because the ones that are on my list don't have nearly, if any, Bible support like the ones that the Jews had that Paul had to deal with. Christian liberty is the right or the privilege to be stupid by choosing less than the best for your family. Christian liberty includes the right or privilege to be stupid by choosing less than the best for your family. I'm not trying to run anyone down, but those Jews that were clinging to Moses, though they had been baptized in the name of Christ, were stupidly depriving their families. Paul Paul called them weak on that very basis. And he said, we know that an idol doesn't mean anything in this world, that there's only one God, and He's our Father. But they deprive their families, and you're allowed to do that. Because in every matter of liberty, there is this range in which you can make choices that are on the weak or weaker or weakest end of that range, and you're going to cost your family. And we're going to be covering some of those as we go through them. And a weak Jewish family reduced to vegetarianism loses some of God's goodness because God's given us such a variety to eat. A father sending his children to just any school must put forth more effort to train them. Every father, as he makes a choice for the schooling of his children, is either wise or foolish about it, 
And it's not sin in either case because it's still a matter of liberty. So I'm not using foolish in the sense of a sin against God like a fool that denies the existence of God. That's why I'm using the word stupid. You're going to have to put forth more effort. It's like in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 where Solomon said, if you don't sharpen the edge of the axe, what are you going to have to put forth? More effort. Is that stupid? It's stupid. Is it a sin? No, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. Instead of sitting down and not touching the tree while the man with the dull axe is working his way through the bark, you sit down and take the time to sharpen the blade on that axe. It's a wonderful principle of wisdom. To sharpen your axe. Meaning to be as wise as possible. So even though we are going to teach, and we have always taught in this church, that how you educate your children in the academics is a matter of Christian liberty because the Bible doesn't teach otherwise. It's a matter of Christian liberty, but you're going to have to put forth more effort depending on which choice you make. And we can tell you which choice you make is going to require more effort. The public schools on one end are going to require maximum effort out of the Father to undo the curriculum and the peer pressure and the teachers of that particular choice of education. All the way up to homeschooling where the father, you know, stays at home or does the schooling when he gets home and teaches the children himself so that he can control every sentence and word that comes out of his mouth in the entire curriculum. And there's no peer pressure because all they get to do is play with their brothers and sisters. I mean, that would be, those would be two extremes. And you know what? We're going to defend both in this church. But I'll tell you, when you make a choice over on this end, meaning the former of my two illustrations, you're going to get reminded from me that you better be one magnificent father because you are stacking the deck against yourself. Just like when you say, I'm going to be a vegetarian, I would say, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat you about it or, or berate you about it, I would just say, oh brother, you're going to miss so much. And I'd start describing what a ham sandwich tastes like. But I, you know, I'd say, brother, it's, I'll defend you 100%. But you're missing so much. Oh, consider the scriptures. This is as a pastor. If you, if you cannot stop at just mere stupidity in a matter of Christian liberty, but you abuse it into sin, then you'll be warned and punished for it because then it's crossed over the line of Christian liberty into what God's commandments are and what He has told us we ought to do. Right. Any issue of Christian liberty used too extensively or pushed too forcefully will become sin. A television in your home is a matter of liberty. We don't send deacons to check on whether you have a television or not. I don't ask whether you have a television or not. But watched too freely, a television quickly becomes sin. Because the Bible says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. The Bible says we do not make a provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. The Bible wants us to avoid the lifestyle of the world. And yet it's television that conveys the lifestyle of the world right into the homes of people. So a television is a matter of liberty, but watching it too freely quickly becomes sinful. And that's where we need to be discreet and have discretion, not just toward one another as to what liberties we should or should not talk about with them, but we should have discretion ourselves in managing our liberty. Making Sunday a day of rest is a matter of liberty, but requiring it of others makes it a sin. 
If I was to get worked up enough about the fact that I think cutting your grass on Sunday afternoon is displeasing to God, and so I preach a bunch of sermons about the Sabbath, and then I read some Puritan commentaries about the Puritans and their New Testament Sabbath, none of which is taught in the New Testament, and I tried to enforce that on you, it would become sin in another direction. Because then I'd be taking my personal liberty and feelings and thoughts on that issue and trying to force them on you. We don't do that in this church. Most or all matters of liberty have a range of acceptable use where outside that range becomes sin. The moderate use of alcohol. You know, when we often when we say it, we say the moderate use of alcohol. Well, what if it's not moderate? Then it becomes sin. Drunkenness is sin. There's no question about it. And drunkenness is defined very carefully in the Bible. And it's not a certain amount of blood alcohol level. It's defined by the effect that it has on people, and you're able to identify it. They knew when people were drunk in the Bible, and the, and the Lord knew it, and the Bible inspired it. And we've had we've had a whole seminar on that subject. Female attire, Christian modesty. Is it a matter of liberty or not? Is modesty a matter of Christian liberty? The word is not. Is where we draw the line a matter of liberty? Yes. All these are going to be dealt with in detail. I'm just building a foundation that there are things that are called liberties and there are things that are not liberties and there are things that are both. And modesty is something that is required in the Bible, but how that modesty is applied and what is allowed and what is not allowed is a matter of liberty and who has to draw the final line? The person that least wants to do it in the whole church. Your pastor. Because I don't want to have a Crosby rules of etiquette and modesty for the church of Greenville. And so we don't have one. Though we try to give some guidelines and we see people break the guidelines and it, it's irritating to see the rebellion and the ignorance on some people that want to break the guidelines that were given at great pain of soul to my wife and me on such things. But we will continue to try to do that in the least oppressive way because we want to have the law of liberty in this church, not the law of a manual that we make up. We could make up a manual that would cover every single one of these things. We could say for your given body weight, how many ounces of wine at what percentage of alcohol you get to have in a 12-hour period of time. We're not going to do that. Whenever you hear any guidelines come out of a men's meeting or a ladies' meeting, it is with great fear and humility before God of trying to practice Hebrews 13.7 that says churches ought to follow their pastor's faith, knowing the end of their conversation. And Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 23, where God's ministers are to set a difference between the holy and the profane. But I, I hope that you're thinking now that there are some of these things, television's a liberty, some of the things you watch may very well not be. Modesty is not a matter of liberty, but we allow some liberty in it. Because the Bible doesn't specify clearly what we can and we cannot wear. It gives us general guidelines and principles, and it certainly tells us that a woman ought to have her character and her spirit the most important thing, not the putting on of apparel or the embroidery of her hair or accessories or anything else. Child discipline. Is child discipline a matter of liberty? No, it's required in the Bible. But is there 
liberty and how each father practices and applies child discipline? Could a father violate child discipline on either end? Isn't that, are you thinking with me? A father could violate it on either end. It's not a matter of liberty, but we allow great liberty. There are gentler fathers in the church. There are more, there are stricter fathers in the church. And so we allow that latitude. And we're not going to answer it all in this series. I can promise you that because all this would take the rest of my life. All I want to do is lay the foundation that we all embrace each other and we allow each other their liberty until it is ob, there's a tsunami that washes over us that that obviously is sin. Buddha's belly has been rubbed. That is too far. And until then, we embrace one another. Pastors have to defend both sides, even if he knows one side is more correct than the other. Isn't that exciting? Paul protected the weak in his teaching, but he tried to teach them as well. But neither would he allow weak members to subject the church to their doubtful disputations, would he? He protected them, but he wouldn't let them cause trouble in the church. It's the pastor's job only to teach the weak. And he does it gently and publicly while protecting them unless they ask for it privately. Let me say that again. It's his job only to teach the weak. It's not your job to teach the weak unless they ask you. It's my job. And I'm going to do it gently. Because you know what? We really don't care. All we care is that you love the Lord Jesus Christ with us. And if you want to join with us and sit around the table of the Lord with us and you won't bring up doubtful disputations, we want you at that table. We want everyone at that table with that being the unifying factor. That being the common union that we have, not these other things. The first rule I'd like to give you in the, we have a few minutes to go here in the second assembly that is, is right in Romans 14.1. And it's no doubtful disputations. And it's where I think we always ought to start when it comes to Christian liberty. And the apostles started there. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. We will take people in as church members that believe all kinds of different things on all these different things that have been mentioned so far and that will be mentioned in days to come, but we're not going to accept, receive, or allow doubtful disputations. We're not going to allow arguments. We're not going to allow judging one another. We're not going to allow despising one another. It's not going to happen here. And it doesn't matter whether we have visitors or whether it's you members that are already members of this church. We're not going to do that. We're going to allow each other their freedom until it is obviously a sin by a tsunami of scriptural evidence and by a tsunami of personal evidence that they're violating what the tsunami of scriptural evidence says. Because otherwise, on these things that I'm going to list, we allow men to have their liberty and families to have their liberty. Weak converts may not discuss, debate, dispute, publish, or question their doubts in the church. And do you know that most churches don't preach on this, and this happens and no one even thinks a thing about it? They think it's part of healthy discussion to have the church divided and disrespecting one another because they differ on different things. We want to respect one another because we've agreed to disagree on all these things. That's how we receive someone that's different from us. We agree to disagree. That's okay, brother. You hold your position on that. That's fine with me if it even comes to a discussion. 
You know, it's going to pop out that you do certain things and you don't do certain things in just ordinary, normal conversation, and that's okay. Can't avoid that. That's just part of communicating. But we don't want to have any crusades in here. We don't want to promote things. We don't want to be criticizing others. We don't want to be sounding like know-it-alls. I just get sick and tired of weekend warriors thinking that they're experts on any subject because they're not. The God of heaven is the expert on subjects. And, and do you know what he said? It doesn't matter. Do you know how he said it doesn't matter? He didn't put it in the Bible. And that's just weighty. When there's no evidence in the Scripture, it is weighty because the Bible's a closed system. The Bible has everything in it that we need to live successful lives to please Him. And if the Bible's silent on something, do you know what it's saying? He that eateth not, eateth not to the Lord and giveth God thanks. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord and giveth God thanks. I love the Bible. I just love it. Can we all, can we all just embrace this doctrine and help me in the next couple of weeks get through it a little faster than today? It's, this is a burden to me, but I'm going to do it because it's here. But no doubtful disputations. I have had to endure disputations with members picking on just about everyone in this church for choices that you make in your lives. You know, and those members are gone now and they're no longer members with us. But it's just, it's just terrible. You know, when we have righteousness, peace, and joy being set up as the high standard of what a church ought to be about, we're down here groveling around and fussing and worrying about things that don't matter. Can you believe when you've got the Lord Jesus Christ on one side and life insurance on the other that you would walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ because a church believes in life insurance? Keep your junk at home to restrict your own life and turn your children off, but leave us alone. That's a little hint about your liberties. You want to be extra conservative? I'm looking forward to the next 20 years to watch if your weak conservatism is going to work. Because liberty is a wonderful thing. Do you know what liberty results in? People being happy. Have you heard that in my preaching so far? It results in people being happy. You say, are you saying being a libertine and let your children do anything lascivious that they want to in order to make them happy? Did I say anything like that? Or am I talking about Christian liberty? It's like the poor Jewish family. The kids come home every Sunday. We heard that the Jones family had homemade pizza with ham, bacon, and pepperoni on it. Daddy, can we have a homemade pizza? Mrs. Jones was so kind to send one home with us. <laughs> and, and the poor father has this dilemma on his hands. And I want, I'm, I'm just throwing no doubtful disputations. We're not going to debate these things, but I hope that you'll be wise about them all. You know, instead of debating them with us, keep them at home and restrict your own life, but don't try to restrict ours and be careful about your children. It's just a piece of pastoral advice right now about children when they see what everyone else is doing, and I don't mean sin. I'm talking about liberties. And you're always saying no. You're always saying no. Then, then you're depriving your own happiness if we trust the Bible. Because the Bible says it's a law of liberty, And that liberty brings happiness because God has given us a whole lot of things to enjoy that fundamentalists have tried to get rid of, that Pharisees tried to get rid of, 
that the Jews tried to get rid of. May the Lord give you understanding of what I'm trying to say there. You know, why do you want to tell us what you learned as a weekend warrior on the Internet? Is it pride? Do you want us to think that you're a research expert? Should we hire you? I just wonder why people want to pop off with this stuff in ordinary conversations. Well, we just don't believe in such a... Why? Why did you want to tell me that? Why did it come out? Are you trying to convert me on this thing? That's a doubtful disputation. It's disputing in the church. It's foolish and unlearned questions. It's ignorance talking. We don't care what you believe about those little things, really. Let's not worry about them. Let's talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we don't talk about Him enough. Do you think we talk about the Lord too much? We don't talk about Him enough. Romans 14, verse 17, The kingdom of God exalts peace and unity above your scruples always. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. The kingdom of God is not televisions and cigars. By the way, let me, let me chase a cigar rabbit for a moment. Who's the greatest Baptist preacher of the last 200 years? Charles Spurgeon. What's his nickname? The Prince of Pulpiteers. The Prince of Pulpiteers. How many does Brookwood have on a Sunday? A couple thousand? How many does the Metropolitan Tabernacle have? 20,000. Every sermon he preached was in, the, was in the London papers the next day, transcribed and published. The Prince of Pulpiteers, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, and universities like Bob Jones University, whose motto is, the world's most unusual university for holding to, we don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those that do. That particular university in our city Who do they present as the greatest Baptist preacher ever? Charles Spurgeon. They sell his books to all their young ministers so that they can go out there with all the volumes of Charles Spurgeon on their shelves. What did Charles Spurgeon enjoy doing every day that they don't tell their students about? A big one. And the brand that he smoked was well known in London so that that store and brand was swamped. Because that's what the Prince of Pulpiteers smoked. You know, what get me about fundamentalists is their historical research is so narrow, they don't even know the people they set up as their heroes. You know, Martin Luther was set up as a hero, though he ordered the persecution of Baptists in Germany, and he was an infant sprinkling heretic. Charles Spurgeon is set up as another hero, and he didn't even have musical instruments in a church built for 20,000 people. When D.L. Moody came to Spurgeon's church in D.L. Moody, if he didn't have music, there weren't very many people that were going to listen to his preaching. He used music as part of his ministry. But when he came to Charles Spurgeon, there weren't any musical instruments. But yet they set him up as a hero. And all we want to do is walk, is go down the crown of the road. We don't really care what Charles Spurgeon did or did not do, but I want to point out the inconsistency of those who want to set up rules that smoking is so terrible, and yet their great preacher smoked. And I wonder what Bible verses they would love to lay on Charles Spurgeon. Because he defended himself in the London papers once when there was a movement about Christians shouldn't be smoking, And if you want to go online, you can read Charles Spurgeon defend himself 
in his liberty. I'm thankful that we have fathers of the faith that we may disagree with on some points, but once in a while it's useful to bring their revered memories up out of the grave and see the smoke coming from his tombstone. There was a generation, 150 to 200 years ago, that was so much more like what we're trying to preach and live here in this church than what the Baptists have been the last 150 years. They have, you know, they fell on the wagon. They fell, they didn't fall off the wagon, they fell on the wagon of the Prohibition and Temperance Movement. And they, they fell on this wagon, they fell on that wagon, and, and they got excited with the Seventh-day Adventists about thir- certain things, and there were Seventh-day Baptists. And, you know, they started eating breakfast cereal, and they, oh, and it, it, there's nothing wrong with breakfast cereal. I was raised on it. But it's wonderful to, for just to go down the, the, the straight and narrow of the, of the Word of God and know that a couple hundred years ago there were so many more just like us. No Roman Catholic holidays, no musical instruments, no, no, of the, no auxiliaries or additions or inventions that have been added into the church. They didn't care what you did at home if you smoked a cigar or not. They weren't buying their wine. They were making their own wine. There wasn't a church in the world of any denomination that didn't serve wine for the Lord's Supper. It's the most incredible thing to go find out about the Methodist Dr. Welch that invented grape juice just 175 years ago or so and pawned it off on a Methodist church and then the rest joined in because we had a movement going in our country called the called Prohibition and the Temperance Movement. That's what made it happen. It wasn't because there was a return to the Word of God. The return to the Word of God would have found Abraham and Melchizedek, the foretype of the Lord Jesus Christ, having bread and wine. Returning to the Word of God would have found the Lord Jesus eating bread that John the Baptist didn't and drinking wine that John the Baptist didn't. Jesus was called a wine-bibber because he... But they just went off. They just went off and got on a wagon of prohibition and went against the Word of God. And they've created these issues, and the fundamentalists love these issues because if you can define your religion by, by these little things, and they miss the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Revelation 3.20 is used in their churches only momentarily at the end when the organist is supposed to play just as I am and the preacher comes down and invites people to be saved and uses Revelation 3.20 and they miss the whole purpose of it. The purpose of Revelation 3.20 is for every single one of you and for me to have a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that if we measure our religion by anything but that, we are naked, blind, wretched, poor, and in trouble. And it's a huge difference. We want to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and ignore all these little things. But apply the rules that the Bible does give us about them. Peace is far more important than principle. Peace is far more important than principle if principle is merely your opinion of right or wrong. Peace. Because of this verse right here. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. I love that verse. I know, I just keep repeating it. Because if you'll get that verse down, you'll understand when we come together, when we function as a church, and the things that I ought to be thinking about that are the most important are righteousness. Doing what God has said is right. 
Two, making sure that there is peace in the church, always being a peacemaker. And three, that the whole church is happy. We don't want anyone to ever come in here afraid that people are thinking thoughts about them because they're either weak or strong, or that somebody's going to say something to them because they're weak or strong, or that somebody's going to bring up a subject to hurt their feelings, or that children are going to say anything to their children. We never want that to happen. We want them to come here because we preach the Word of God and we stand on righteousness and we're all at peace and we're all happy and we make them happy because they can't see a single thing when they're around us. They can't hear a single thing when they're listening to us and they don't see anything when when they're in our homes that's any different than what they do. You know, if you've got to go by a television to put in your homes for people that visit you that have a television and go buy one and just sit in your home. You know, it's not wired up or powered or anything. And don't you dare serve a bottle of wine to somebody that comes to your home that doesn't drink it. And don't you dare offer... You can offer me a cigar, but I'll just, I'll just save you some money. Romans 14. If there's a Bible basis for your superstition about something, but we do not hold it yet as doctrine... We don't really care. If you want to humbly ask learned questions, I'll consider answering every question. I answer them every day from all sorts of people in all sorts of places. If you cannot do what we allow, then you're weak. We'll receive you, but we will not hear you about the matter because we want to be at peace on these things. And it's every single one of us. You know, as... As children grow up and leave their father's house, and I have a bunch of those, they have different liberties than I do. I haven't changed yours much, Dad. But you know what? It doesn't matter. And a father should give up that liberty when his children leave his home. Because while they're at home, Numbers chapter 30 says, while she's his wife and while his daughter is at home under his roof, that is when he can disannul her vow to the Lord, her free will offering. You cannot compromise your conscience in a matter of liberty. You know that. Look at verse 23 of this Romans 14. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And look at 1 Corinthians 8, 7. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. The second rule is you cannot compromise your conscience. You make sure that your conscience is settled on what you do. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Paul has just spent three verses teaching the weak that there is no, there's no uh, effect by an idol, that there's only one God in, in heaven or in earth. It's in verses 4 through 6. But in verse 7, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so we don't want to do that ourselves personally. We want to make sure that our conscience is settled. So it says in Romans 14, 5, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In order to avoid being damned, like Romans 14, 23, and he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, to avoid that horrible outcome, we want to bring our conscience up to speed. We want to educate our conscience. It's your duty to be fully persuaded in your own mind. A conscience can be educated by Scripture. And that's why the Apostle Paul was continually trying to bring the weak up to the strong by declaring to them, I am persuaded and I have been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ that there is no such thing as unclean meat. 
that there's no such thing as impure meat, that the idol is nothing in this world. He would say all those things because he's trying to bring the consciences of the weak up. Now it's been asked me, how do you know the difference between searing your conscience and educating your conscience? And it's pretty simple. You can only sear your conscience if you're doing it for a wrong motive or by a wrong source. Otherwise it doesn't happen. What's your motive? To make friends with people? Peer pressure? To be more accepted by your children by being cooler? It's that simple. The Apostle Paul took Peter apart for Peter doing something that it looks like the Apostle Paul did. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says that Paul was made all things to all men. If he was with the Jews, he became as a Jew. If he was with those under the law, he was under the law. Those without law, he was without law. And it's all there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But when Peter tried that over there in Galatians chapter 2, he was eating with the Gentiles when some Jews came from Jerusalem Peter all of a sudden wouldn't touch the Gentile table and was sitting here over with the Jews and he made the distinction so great that it even swayed Barnabas who was taken with his hypocrisy. But but Paul tells exactly why he rebuked Peter and it explains it's there out of fear. Peter didn't change to save anyone. Peter didn't change to edify anyone. Peter changed out of fear. It's not searing your conscience when you do it because the Word of God educates you. It's you're searing your conscience and doing something you didn't do in the past when you do it for the wrong motive or from the wrong source. Where did you get your information from to change you and why are you changing? If you got your information from the Bible and you're changing because you want to be more in line with Scripture, you haven't seared your conscience, you've educated your conscience. I hope that little explanation helps. See, Paul's constantly trying to change consciences, though he speaks of them very highly and says that if a man has a conscience toward meat offered to an idol that it's wrong, then to him it's evil and to him it's sin, but he's constantly trying to change that man's conscience. Do you notice that? He's constantly at work trying to change that man's conscience by the things he slides in, by the whole New Testament. But all consciences must be considered, not just your own. Every conscience that's around you, we want to be so sensitive to that. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. We can start at verse 24. 1 Corinthians 10. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Is that the same as Romans 15? We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's such similar language. It's It's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul to the church at Rome, to the church at Corinth. Verse 24, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. (coughs) All these matters of Christian liberty, we should be looking at using them or not using them, enjoying them or sacrificing them for the benefit of everyone that we meet in this church in taking care of every one of our church members. Verse 25, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, the meat markets of Rome, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat. Asking no question for conscience sake. We'll come back to it at another time about ignorance is bliss in matters of liberty. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Just flat out doctrinal truth from the Bible. The Lord owns the cattle in a thousand hills. They don't belong to anyone else. And when you go in to buy beef, you're buying something that the Lord owns on every hill. Enjoy it. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the doctrine. But notice the conscience. You don't ask a question to protect your conscience. But then there's more consciences at stake than just yours because you want to be sensitive to every conscience. So in verse 27, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, 
and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, notice what he says again, from verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Lord is the Lord of every part of our lives. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 29, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? And he goes on to describe saying, I want to do everything to the glory of God. I want to give none offense to any man. And I want to save all that I possibly can. And so our our effort about the conscience is, first of all, we have to be fully persuaded in our own mind. And then, in matters like this, that deal with the worship of God and that are important, that are not man-made little superstitions out there, like the prohibition movement does not meet this. The prohibition movement and the temperance movement of the teetotalers in Greenville County match up with the Pharisees and their washing of pots and cups and their washing of hands. And do you know what Jesus would say to them? You can't be defiled by what goes into a man's mouth. It's by what comes out. And after Jesus gave them that little object lesson, the disciples came to Him and said, Don't you know that you offended the Pharisees? And He said, they be blind leaders of the blind. Let them both fall into the ditch. Amen. He said, uh, every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. That's a man-made issue of washing pots and cups that has no biblical basis for it whatsoever. The eating of meat offered to an idol is a very serious, important matter of the worship of one God or not. And the Jews had problems with it. And so the Apostle Paul made a distinction about that. If a man at a block party knew that you were a Christian, that you worshiped Jehovah only, and he had offered his meat to Jupiter, and he saw you eating it, and he came and made it an issue, I thought you were a Christian and worshiped Jehovah only, that meat's been offered to Jupiter, you'd push the plate back. If you're working to convert one of these fundamentalist Pharisees in town, you might push the, bo- the glass of wine back from a dinner in a restaurant. But you don't have to for the rest of the population, or you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, t- are you telling me that if you lived in western Pennsylvania, you would turn your electricity off and throw your plumbing out in the yard like the Amish do in every house that they buy? Oh. Do you, would you eat breakfast cereal every morning if you had a neighbor that was a Seventh-day Adventist? No, we wouldn't. We're going to line our things up that, that, are, that affect us in 2013 with the various examples that we have in the New Testament Scriptures. We are not going to walk around fearful of everyone out there that has made up man, man-made little rules like the Amish. I want you to think about that when you're asking yourself, what should I do in public when I'm sitting in a restaurant? If you're at a restaurant that serves wine and you're thinking of having a glass of wine with your lasagna, there shouldn't be a Christian in there that has a problem or they're a hypocrite to begin with because they're supporting a business that giveth drink to his neighbor. And Malachi chapter 2 says that is abominable. Enjoy. But now what if you were trying to convert a fundamentalist and you took them to lunch? Would you order a glass of wine? No. You wouldn't be pushing your liberty on him at that stage. If you live next door to the Seventh-day Adventists, would you stay inside your house all day Saturday and not cut the grass and read the Bible just so that you wouldn't offend them? I'm just trying to help you out. 
once you start down the path that we live in Greenville, and therefore we shouldn't ever have a glass of wine in public because somebody might be offended, well, then Jesus Christ should have always washed his hands before he ate, and he should have gone around with the ruler and slapped his apostles on their hands to make sure that they washed before they ate. But you know what? He didn't because he didn't care. Because they were blind leaders of the blind. You say it sounds like wisdom and discretion to make that difference, though. That's the whole point of reading the Bible and learning and thinking. And why I'm giving you other illustrations to tell you that once you land on that position, that you're not going to offend people that have made a little man-made rule that doesn't have any Bible basis, well, then you better start doing that for all the other man-made rules that don't have a Bible basis for you to be consistent. And pretty soon, you're going to be living in Montana by yourself lest you offend your neighbor. Jesus didn't mind. He didn't care if they called him a wine-bibber. He just kept on ordering another glass with dinner as he ate bread, which John the Baptist didn't do either of. I hope enough has been said that men may set the liberty for their families. You know, men, men set the liberty for their families, and I gave you Numbers chapter 30 about fathers and wives and father, husbands and wives and fathers and daughters about disannulling a free will offering in Numbers chapter 30. The, what's the greatest example in the Bible of a father asserting himself in a matter of Christian liberty and his sons obeying it for successive generations? Jehonadab. There's a whole chapter in the Bible about it, Jeremiah 35, and about all the things he didn't want his sons to do because it was a, a living object lesson that they were going to go into captivity soon. You know, they couldn't drink wine, they couldn't eat, in, they couldn't live in permanent houses and so forth because he knew that they were all going to be taken away from Jerusalem and be living in Babylon. And, the, and Jeremiah comes along and commends that father and his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons for their obedience to their father in a matter of liberty that God hadn't required of anyone, but that Je- Jehonadab had set. You know, tattoos and tobacco are matters of Christian liberty. We'll talk about these in more detail in days to come, but a father can forbid his children both. A father can turn a matter of liberty into a sin. Because if the child goes ahead and does it, not only is he's not keeping a matter of liberty, he's breaking his father's commandment. So it becomes a sin. If this were not the case, that those under authority are under the authority in matters of liberty as well, everyone would start using their conscience as an excuse to escape authority. And the Bible's already covered that for us. Instead of thinking that this is hard and strict and severe, educate your conscience or learn the conscience that's over you. We only disobey authority when it contradicts God's clear laws. Hasn't that been taught before? I hope that everything that's coming out of my mouth is consistent with what's been taught before. We only disobey authority when it contradicts something God has expressly stated in His Word. A father may allow children liberty in some areas, and a husband may consider a wife's conscience. You know, our nation is has built on such good scriptural principles. Do you know that we have things like conscientious objectors? You know, they're they're taking sensitive a sensitive approach to our consciences as Christians, and there's certifications and so forth that you can get for religious exemptions. We we live in a pretty wonderful country. Wise parents will be cautious to impose their liberty on their children, waiting for the more important issues in life. Every parent 
has a few, has a few things that he can pl- play and enforce on his children because if you try to do them all, you're probably going to lose. And so you want to preserve your relationship and authority with your children to the ones that count. And so when you can give on a matter of conscience or a matter of liberty to a child, it's just sometimes the wise thing to do. There's so much more to be said and so much more will be said. I hope that when you go home today, not only are you concerned about your conscience and the consciences of others and that you're careful in your matters of liberty that though God allows you to have a television, you're watching things that you could justify if Jesus Christ walked into the room. There's angels there watching it. And the Bible uses angels in Ecclesiastes 5. The Bible uses angels in 1 Corinthians 11. That you better not say that an oath was wrong in the presence of an angel, Ecclesiastes 5. A woman better have long hair on her head to show that she's under the authority of a husband, 1 Corinthians 11, because the angels see these things. Angels see what you watch in your television. Let's make sure that the liberty that we allow ourselves, we're not using it in a way that turns it into sin. Let's make sure that we're sure of our own consciences. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Let's make sure that we're considerate of every other conscience around us, whether it's us speaking, having someone in our house, showing our liberty in public, letting our children talk about our liberty. In all those ways, we should be conscientious, careful Christians because that's the preeminent emphasis of liberty in the Bible, that we take care of one another. May the Lord bless us to be like-minded, because we don't care about all these little things, and that our like-mindedness is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that I hope you'll go home and maybe find a better version of Ah, Dearest Jesus on YouTube or on the Internet somewhere that you can share with me. We have one on our website. I have another one that I have found. Anything to encourage you to think about the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's why we've assembled today. We're called by His name. We're saved by His blood. And we shall be saved eternally in the final phase of salvation by his never-ending life. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.